Hello and welcome to another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast brought to you by Cheeky Scientist. I'm your host, Isaiah Henkel, and today we will be talking to Catherine Serbara about imposter syndrome. Um, if you're interested in listening to the full interview and getting access to all of our job search materials and our job search network and being able to attend our webinars and interviews live, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association to learn more about becoming an associate. If you are interested in getting these highlights and these podcasts delivered to your email inbox, go to cheekyscientist.com and subscribe uh, to receive these materials for free. Um, you can email subscribe on that page in the bottom center. And then, of course, you can listen to these podcasts and all of our podcasts on iTunes. So again, we're going to be talking with Catherine Sabara about imposter syndrome. Uh, Catherine is originally from Canada, where she did her undergraduate degree in biochemistry and a master's in genetics. She then moved to Munich, Germany, where she spent five years doing her PhD in um, medical life science and technology. Uh, she moved to Cambridge from there, Cambridge, England, at the end of 2004, where she transitioned into a role as a publishing editor at the Royal Society of Chemistry. Uh, she is uh, currently involved in peer review of scientific literature, as well as writing and public speaking. Um, she's a very big advocate for um, AWICE, which is a regional STEM network for women in science, uh, engineering, and technology. So we are going to jump in with Catherine now. So we're very fortunate to have you here, Kathy. Thanks for making time. Uh, to be with us. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. Okay, great. So the the first question I have is just very basically because there's a there's a lot of different definitions for us, but maybe of imposter syndrome, and maybe you can help us understand what imposter syndrome is in 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 the the, the simplest sense. Sure. Yeah. When I think about imposter syndrome, I think about feeling like a fraud. Um, so I think. The best example I've ever heard is you think about it like there's a group called the fraud police, a group of fictitious people that are going to come banging down your door at any moment and say you're faking it. Everything that you've ever done, your PhD, your papers, that's all fake. Um, so it's a lot about having self-doubt about your successes. And every time you, you get a success, it kind of reinforces those feelings of fraud. So, oh, that was just lucky. Um, anybody could do it. And I, I don't really belong here, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I think that's a, a, a real um, enlightening description of it. And just in terms of the, the simplest sense, what it means to be an imposter. And, you know, I, I think this is something we've all experienced uh, at one time or another, maybe Maybe some of you haven't. Uh, I know I have. When I was in graduate school, I, you know, especially the first couple of years, I just kept waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and tell me that, you know, I, uh, hey, we all know you don't belong here, right? And so it's that kind of creeping feeling you get where you think everybody has certain skills or everybody's publishing or whatever it might be, and and you're being left behind or you don't have those skills. Um, and it's it's a scientific term in the field of psychology, imposter syndrome. Uh, over you could, There's peer-reviewed studies on it. Over 70% of the population, up to 70% of the population, um, has experienced it um, at one point in their career. And so dealing with it is important because when you go on a job interview, when you go to a networking event, if you allow yourself to, to feel this imposter syndrome or, or listen to those inner voices that say, you know, you are missing out or you don't have what everybody else has, it's going to, it's going to come through. And many of you have experienced this, which is why this uh, webinar has been, uh, has been requested uh, so much over the last few months. 
Uh, so, so the next question, Kathy, I wanted to ask is in terms of, you know, your your personal story, you know, what what were some of the uh, experiences you had in terms of imposter syndrome? How, how did imposter syndrome affect you during your PhD, your postdoc, and even during your transition period? So maybe you could talk about those different time points and, and you know, what it, how it manifested for you personally. Mm -hmm. um, well, I was in a very competitive lab and where I was, um, I felt very intimidated by people around me about the project that I was doing. It was very difficult. Um, so I felt like I just couldn't cut it. Even though, looking back, I did do well. I published papers. I graduated. But the whole time I was doing my PhD, I felt like I wasn't going to cut it. And that made me just put in so many hours to feel like I had to prove myself. And it for me, it was very difficult because every time I got a piece of feedback from my supervisor, for example, if he said, you know, this report was inadequate, to me, that was being translated to I'm inadequate. So I was internalizing all the feedback that I was receiving as being negative feedback on me personally. And then if you think about going to conferences, it made me very nervous about talking to other people in the field because I perceived them as being highly skilled and experienced, where me, I had no idea what I was doing. And then while I was transitioning, you think about seeing a job description and not being able to tick all of the boxes. Um, a person not having that imposter syndrome will think, well, I know I can do it anyways um, because I'm confident in the skills I do have, where I would be more like, you know what, I only have 85% of the experience that they want, so I better not apply because I don't think I'd be able to do it. So it's all of these little nervous ticks of self-doubt that kind of take over whenever you want to let's say, do anything outside of the box. Hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that's a very good description of it. And, and I want to just go on a little bit deeper. So how did this affect you in terms of, I guess, your stress levels or your emotions or even your productivity? Um, well, I was very stressed. I mean, that goes without saying. Um, during grad school, I also I suffered a lot from anxiety and even depression. So it was, for me, it was something that was holding me back. Um, and I felt like I needed to over-prepare for everything. Um, so if, if I had a talk to give, I would spend hours and hours preparing and practicing um, more so than, than anybody else would. Um, and then if I succeeded in that task, I would be, well, I got really lucky that time rather than saying, okay, you know what, I, I actually, I did something, I, I accomplished something well. Um, so it was, there was all of this worry that, that someone will find out that I wasn't meant to be there. Mm -hmm. So it made graduate school very stressful, especially in science, as everybody knows, because you, you make a million mistakes mm -hmm. um, that just happens. But I had a sense of perfectionism, but perfectionism in that, even when I succeeded in doing something, I still couldn't enjoy that success. 
Yeah, very, very, um, and very clarifying. So I think the important thing here is to understand, you know, not only what imposter syndrome is, but the effects of it. And it's it's just something that is it's always going to be there. You're going to have these thoughts, but um, being able to manage them or or channel them uh, to to make sure that your productivity, your uh, your emotions, and certainly your performance uh, on on job interviews, networking events uh, doesn't suffer. Um, yeah, so a lot of you are saying, you know, Kathy, this is sounds like you're talking about me and my life. Um, it affects self-esteem. Uh, there's been studies showing that there's a strong correlation with imposter syndrome and self-sabotage and feelings of shame. So again, just identifying some of the stuff, talking about it, showing the science behind it, uh, you know, shows two, you know two things it, that you're not alone if you've experienced this. Most of the population experiences it. It's normal. It's it's partly due to how our brains work, and now. Um, with this information, you can move forward past it and and, and set up some strat strategies for combating it. Uh, so, so Cassie, my next question is: Okay, so let's let's move towards mitigating imposter syndrome, right? So when these feelings creep up, or or when once you identify that you have experienced feelings of, of being an imposter, how, what do you do personally, or what have you done that helped you? You know, during your transition process, um, you know, as as a sufferer of this, what did you do when applying for jobs, for example, uh, to mitigate these feelings or these thoughts? Right, great question. Um, as you said, it you won't be able to get rid of it completely, but I think it's more about changing your thoughts over time. So keep doing things that scare you, but realize that failure is normal and it happens to everyone and success teaches you very little but failure you learn from your mistakes um, so in terms of when i was applying for jobs i was very careful in my wording um, so i noticed because i lacked a lot of confidence and because i had this imposter syndrome I used a lot of minimizing terms when I was describing my experience in like cover letters or resumes. So words like just or only. So for example, I, I only have two years of experience in this, but this, this, and this. And automatically mm. you're putting yourself down without even realizing it. Um, and then when you get that interview or you get that phone call, don't think about, oh, now I have to explain all of these things, all of these things that I don't have experience in. Think they're calling me because they saw your resume and they like what they saw. So you're qualified. So don't feel like you need to explain yourself. Feel like it's now time to really show off your skills. Um, so, yeah, paying attention to my language and paying attention to how I, I portrayed myself in various aspects of, of the job process. Yeah, I think this is really important because communication is powerful, right? We've talked, I mean, how many webinars have we done on presentation skills or networking, interviewing, all these things, that, which are essentially how you're presenting yourself to somebody else. And when you present yourself, you know, you are you're using your vocabulary. Your vocabulary is powerful, and so if you're always if you're if you continue to downplay your accomplishments, which you know from the very first workshop uh, that many of you have gone through on resumes, we talked about this, right? Your your resume, uh, it's not a peer-reviewed 
journal. It is a, a persuasive document. You're supposed to be talking about your strengths in a, in a, in a very you know, sh strong way and you, you're in a very convincing way. And so if you constantly feel that nag uh, in, your, in, your, in your brain to say, well, I've only done this or I did this, sure, but a lot of people helped me. Um, during the job search process, uh, that can really work against you. And in science in general, like it is important to, to train yourself to have a, a critical eye when it comes to the data. This is, of course, important. Um, and even to be cynical with the data and to make sure it's true. But when it comes to yourself, you shouldn't be looking at yourself with the same critical lens. Um, you shouldn't be looking at yourself, your self-worth, your prospects, your opportunities, your chances of getting a job cynically. You have to separate the two, um, and you have to separate them with your vocabulary as well. Just because you'll stand up and give a presentation at a scientific conference of your data, saying that these data suggest, or we've only done this, doesn't mean that's how you want to talk during a networking event about yourself, or during an interview, or how you want to discuss your skills on a resume. Um, so in terms of maybe some simple, simple examples of, you know, as you were networking, or as you were interviewing did, is there any results you started to see once you started to change your vocabulary in this way or the way that you were presenting yourself Kathy um, yeah I mean when I started going to networking events um, especially ones with uh, industry professionals I felt like I was being portrayed as very amateur um, because Internally, I didn't feel like I was on a level playing field with everybody else. Um, so I started to notice that I'd be introducing myself and saying that, you know, I have a PhD, but, but I don't have any experience. And it would just kind of come out without me even thinking about it. Um, but I noticed that if I thought to myself beforehand, these are my peers, um, no matter what level of industry that they're in. And I can treat them as such that I could engage and kind of build rapport with them a lot easier because I didn't have that intimidation factor. Um, and I think that that's really important because if you will get referrals from people, they want to feel like they can be your employee, like they can be your colleague. Um, mm -hmm. So you want to share that some commonalities with them, and you want to act like you're on on the loving level playing field with them. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody lacks confidence from time to time. Um, so you don't want to worry that everybody else is a big shot and and I'm not. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I the, what you said right before the end there, I think is, is crucially important, that you want to approach people as an equal. And we've talked about this time and time again on other uh, workshops, especially when in networking, live networking, uh, online networking. Uh, you don't want to approach other people with the, you know, by presenting yourself as you need something right away, or that you are just a lowly graduate student or postdoc. Um, you want to present yourself as an equal. Uh, we've talked about strategies for doing this. Like, where, you know, one thing that can help in terms of imposter syndrome is connecting other people to each other, right? You raise yourself up in this way. Instead of always asking to be connected or always asking for that referral, if you connect other people to each other, help them in this way, it has a way of elevating you and showing you that, you know, you are a connector of people. You're not just begging for connections. 
And so it really comes down to, to presentation and confidence. And, and it's crucial for, as we talked about, your, the way you communicate on your resume, the way that you communicate during a networking event, the way you communicate during an interview. Um, so let's say we have people on that have, that have uh, you know, in the comments, they've mentioned that they've experienced um, these feelings. Uh, they're still experiencing these feelings. Um, and for those of you listening, please, um, it's a good time to, to ask questions on this too. If you're experiencing imposter syndrome or you have a unique situation, let's say, or there's always a, some sort of obstacle you keep running up against that you can't seem to get past. Uh, maybe you show up to networking events, but you have trouble going inside or really networking with people because you feel like you don't have anything to say. Uh, go ahead and ask a question um, in the chat box. Uh, so uh, I want to talk about, you know, again, the effects of this. So when, if you're experiencing imposter syndrome, let's say we have people experiencing it now and they start feeling stressed or depressed or anxious um, during this transition, especially if the transition is taking a while, which, you know, as you know, it can, it can uh, be a, a daunting process. Um, you know, you could go through a period of unemployment. Uh, so maybe you could talk to us a little bit about strategies for, you know, mitigating the stress or this depression and, and making sure that you're continuing to make progress and moving forward. Yeah, um, I think the toughest part for me was that I always compared myself to others. And I put too much value on other people's judgments. Um, and when you're looking to transition into industry or you have a period of unemployment after your PhD, that can weigh very heavily on you. I know it did for myself, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to family. People expect, well, you have a PhD, you should, you should have a job. Um, what was the point of all of that, that schooling, let's say? Um, but I think you need to create motivations for yourself that have nothing to do with making other people happy and I think as soon as you do that um, I think it makes the process a bit easier um, because you realize that things take time and it takes some people more time than it takes other people and, and that's okay um, and then to realize that you will have moments of self-doubt and and that's completely um, normal and really just to just to give yourself a break um, I mean, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some hard work, but don't burn out because of it. Um, so make sure you take time to recharge, just like you would if you were working on a really difficult project at work, you know, getting enough sleep, all of these little things that doesn't seem important, but is just as important as, as going to that networking event is, is just cutting yourself some slack. Um, and then for me, I did a lot of self-reflection to see what my unique features are that I could offer to a position because I knew I didn't want a bench um, role, which meant I needed to think about what other transferable skills I could offer. So I did a lot of um, self-reflection and the transition plan help for that. And also talking to other people and saying, just asking them what they thought my, my good qualities were. People that you can trust, friends and family. Um, and just letting the transition happen um, and not getting too worried about it. <laughs> mm. I'm a big worrier, but you have to try not to let it um, overcome you, I think. 
Yeah, and remember, we talked about feedback before. So one of the reasons that imposter syndrome happens is because you're looking at the data and despite growth or success, you're telling yourself that you're still a failure or you're uh, not succeeding. Um, so you need to change your perspective, especially with your job search. And that's why we talk so much about getting organized, being strategic, and measuring your progress, right? If you haven't set up you know, your job search strategy spreadsheet, uh, which we did a workshop on this, it's in your guys' dashboard under, under webinars um, or, the, or the archives at this point. If you haven't set up this spreadsheet, you're not going to be able to track your growth. You're not going to be able to see like, oh, I have connected with more people, um, connected with significantly more people than I was a couple of months ago. I've applied to more jobs than I did a few months ago. I've, I've diversified my job search. Uh, I found these new openings, right? Um, you have to measure that. You have to measure these things because measuring allows you to manage it and it shows growth, which will reduce imposter syndrome. And then one thing, you know, that Kathy, you've talked about a lot is having things to look forward to, right? So if you can find a way to look forward to networking events, um, this will keep you from getting de-energized, right? So expectancy or excitement, these kind of things, like having something to look forward to. There's a lot of science behind this. Kathy's written about it in a couple of her articles. Um, and it is, it is very powerful. So if you can find a way to look forward to certain networking events or get people to go, to, go with you to networking events, um, you know, from your lab or from your institution, um, you know, connecting with people inside the association, talking about different events, good, setting up a, an association meetup on your own, these kind of things. Again, it is very, very powerful in keeping you moving forward in, in combating uh, imposter syndrome. So I think, I think that's a very good takeaway. Uh, so in terms of confidence levels, right? So I think a lot of people talk about confidence and it's one of those things, again, when you just say confidence, you think of it as something that's kind of, fluffy or not measurable, but the way you present yourself, confidence, these things, even charisma, there's a lot of science that's come out uh, recently that shows that it is measurable and there are certain things that you can do, right? If, whether it's small things like obviously eye contact, body language, these kind of things, but you know, on, on, on a deeper level in terms of imposter syndrome, Kathy, what are some of the things that you would do, you know, before an interview, before a networking event or whatever it might be to, um, you know, kind of prepare yourself so that you were radiating confidence in, in a way where you, you know, where it was backed up by, by belief or some of the things that you've done in terms of preparation, right? You talked about over-preparing and then still not feeling confident. How did you turn this around so that you prepare and feel confident? Yeah, actually, I stopped over-preparing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I realized that it's like the people that would go to exams with their notes in their hands still and be, be trying to read the textbook 30 seconds before the exam started. Um, I think you have to have a bit of trust in, in yourself. Um, so that definitely helped. So the, the morning before, the morning of the interview, um, say the interview was, was at 10, I wouldn't get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and start reviewing my notes. I would go for a run. I would have a good cup of coffee. Um, I would read the, the newspaper and I would just chill. Um, so I think it's just important to do something that will energize you before you have something really important coming up and to just trust yourself um, that you can do it. So especially with interviews, I think if you over prepare, you can also see it seem a bit robotic. But you want your personality to come through, and, and that's been mentioned in the group before that 
people have nailed all the answers, but because they didn't seem personable, they didn't get the job. So mm. you need a bit of both. Um, so when you're relaxed, your personality does shine through. So I think you need that balance of, of course, you need to prepare, but have confidence in your ability and know that that you can be the one for the job. Mm. Yeah. So, and again, I think it just comes down to, you know, measuring a lot of this stuff or getting a lot of this stuff on paper for, for whatever reason, a lot of PhDs are very, very good at, I mean, many of you will have hundreds of files of data at least on your computer. Um, but you know, one or two related to your job search, you should really be keeping records as you're going through the dashboard, you know, make sure that you are, you're writing things down. You're, you're going through, uh, the, the transition plan to identify the actual kind of professional lifestyle you want. You're looking to fit jobs to that and you're, you're again writing down these different jobs, these positions. You're, you're creating your job search strategy spreadsheet and keep all this in a folder in one place. Again, you all, I guarantee you all have folders in your lab, lab notebooks, you know, actual written, uh, actual folders with printouts of Western blots or whatever they might be. Start keeping one folder for everything that you've done as you've gone through the program you know, through the, the, the Cheeky Scientist program, all the notes that you've taken, um, you know, print off some of the, the Facebook posts that have uh, nuggets of wisdom that will help you or strategies that will help you in your job search. Um, keep this in a folder. And as you see that folder grow, your confidence will grow too, because you'll see, you'll be reminded of all the work that you've done. And you'll know that, you know, a few months ago, um, you were in a very different place and you've come further now. And this will help you in terms of preparation, because you'll realize that you have prepared and you don't need to stress or feel less than because most people that are searching for jobs they are not doing this they're not doing what you guys are doing they're not on these webinars they're not um, getting the cutting edge information from the ground that you guys are getting in in the private group uh, so all of this is is very important um, and start again start keeping track of the way that you're communicating don't communicate with a kind of less than mindset make sure that you're not saying i only done this or you know i did this but really i was helped a lot you want to really talk about what you've done and you want to own that uh, one of the, the last questions I have, Kathy, and then we'll we'll take some um, we'll take some questions from everybody in the chat box. Is in terms of the skills, like so, in terms of your transferable skills, we talked a lot about transferable skills. Uh, in terms of technical skills, how can you really you know own these skill sets and talk about them and communicate them, whether it's on a resume or a networking event or an interview? Uh, uh, in a way, and you touched on this briefly, but wh what kind of advice do you have for really leveraging your unique skill set as a PhD? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is to identify them um, and to realize that you do have them. I, I've spoken to quite a few people that say, that, you know, they'll say I have a PhD in astrophysics, um, but I'm, I don't really have any transferable skills. Uh, and then I laugh, <laughs> like that's yeah. ridiculous. Um, <laughs> So I think the first thing is, and I mean, using this, um, the document that Arundhoy put together with the 50 transferable skills, read through them and see which ones you can identify with and then ask for feedback from other people about what they feel your strengths are. Um, and then, and this comes back to not worrying about what other people think. So don't feel like mm. you have the same skills as everybody else. Um, but see, see those skills as something unique that you can then present 
uh, at an interview. And I think it also helps to start going to um, blue ocean networking events. So networking events that aren't just all scientists with PhDs. Mm -hmm. And when you start talking to other people from different backgrounds and you talk about what you do, I think that's a huge boost in confidence because people will be amazed at your accomplishments as they should be. Mm. Um, because you are not the, you're one of the few people with a, with a PhD. And so when you talk to people at other networking events, you go to a wine tasting or an art exhibition or something like that, and you just start chatting with people, you'll see how amazed they are by you. And I think that can be a huge confidence booster. Thank you for joining us for another Industry Careers for PhDs podcast. If you're interested in attending one of these interviews live, or if you're interested in getting access to the full interview, including all of the background materials and show notes, go to cheekyscientist.com backslash association and learn how to become a associate. Uh, you can get on the wait list for the next association enrollment period there and learn full details about the program. It's a program specifically designed to help PhDs transition uh, into top industry positions. If you would like to see receive more of these interview highlights uh, via our podcast uh, sent directly to your email, go to cheekyscientist.com and email subscribe under where it says start here. If you haven't already, you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Um, until next week, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.